If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Winston Churchill's famous speech of summer 1940 hailed the RAF as the famous few who protected the skies during the Battle of Britain. But less is known about the work of the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, who worked tirelessly behind the scenes under high pressure in order to ensure the success of Britain's Air Force. Speaking to Emily Briffitt, Dr Sarah Louise Miller, historian and author of The Women Behind the Few, delves into impactful roles played by the WAF during World War II, from courageous secret agents to the unflappable women behind the Dam Busters raid. Hi, Sarah. Thank you so, so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. So we're going to be talking all about your new book, The Women Behind the Few. But who were the WAF? And when we talk about the WAF, who do we actually mean? It's kind of one of those terms most people might not be familiar with, actually. We know the RAF, the Royal Air Force. Everybody knows the RAF, but the WAF less so. They were actually created exactly the same time as the RAF. On the 1st of April uh, 1918, the RAF was born. Exactly the same time the Women's Royal Air Force was born in the First World War. And it's quickly disbanded between the wars, but then in the Second World War, it's reborn as the WAF, the Women's Auxiliary Air Force. And it's exactly what it sounds like. It's attached to the men, the kind of parent service, the, the RAF for the men. And they are there to kind of supply the Royal Air Force with people to help when there's clearly going to be a manpower crisis during wartime. So we send the men away, the women fill in. So were the WAF part of the Royal Air Force or not? 
their status was debated um, and sort of is that's a, a point most people want to fixate on they're very much an auxiliary service also i looked up the word auxiliary and it bothers me slightly because it means support and there's very much this idea that they are there to free a man for duty and that's their only value and that they can't have value beyond that but there are actually for all intents and purposes they are air women I think there is that perception that women were almost the secretaries and the clerks to the daring pilot out in the field facing life and death. But I'm guessing this is not going to be what we're talking about. This is not the case. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book, actually, because of this massive misconception we've got. Misunderstanding, call it what you want. And and I think part of that was, was unintentional because we don't write books about clerks and secretaries. And let's be honest, if we did, would we read them? Because it's it comes off as boring, but it's it's definitely a misconception where the WAF are concerned. They look like they're doing clerical work, but they're actually doing critically important work to keep the RAF where it needs to be at the right time. So this book for me was about kind of correcting um, an incorrect historical narrative in that way. So why exactly have they been overshadowed? And this is why I called it the women behind the few because they are behind the few, the pilots of the Royal Air Force, who are so famous from the Battle of Britain, rightly so, very courageous men. But these women are behind them in terms of supporting them, but they're also behind them in terms of being hidden behind them, because what they're doing kind of isn't sexy. It's not like, you know, wearing a flight suit and standing in front of a, a Spitfire. That's sexy, that's interesting. And it's exciting. And And what these women are doing it doesn't look subversive. They're doing kind of what they're supposed to do as women. So we don't really pay them much attention. And they've kind of just been completely overlooked. They are actually called special duties clerks, a lot of them. So they have the word clerk in their title, which leads to an assumption that they are, you know, stocking the stationery cupboard rather than providing critically important intelligence. Have you faced any particular challenges in researching and writing your book about this? Definitely, yes. In terms of historical sources, you always have a challenge where women are concerned because historical records are not kind to women. They are missing, they are misrepresented, misdescribed. And it it kind of dawned on me quite early on when I was in the National Archives, I wasn't going to get what I needed in places like that. There was big, huge, thick folders on arguments over uniform and status and things like rank, but nothing telling me what they actually did in the war, how they felt about it and what it meant. So that kind of subjective history just wasn't possible with the official records. So I had to get quite creative, which was really fun because it meant reading WAF diaries and looking at photos a lot, talking to these women if they were still around. Sadly, lots of them are not, but some are. And they're huge characters. They're always super fun to talk to. And oral history projects, thank goodness for oral history projects that people have thought to carry out and record the memories and the feelings of these women. I'm so grateful for that. So before we get into the characters behind the WAF, I think we probably need to go right back to the start of the story. Whenabouts were the WAF formed? They are kind of knocking on the Air Ministry's door, but just before the Second World War, because you've got this group of amazing women who have served in the First World War, and they're not silly. They can see that they're going to be needed if, if another war is coming, which it looks likely in the late 1930s. 
and they're kind of banging on the air ministry door and saying, look, we're here, we'll go again, use us. And the air ministry pretty insistently says no for quite a while. And it's not until 1939, just a few months before the outbreak of the Second World War, that they are officially recreated as the Women's Auxiliary Air Force, which is quite late because the army brought their women's units back in 1938 and then the Royal Navy just before the WAF. So they're kind of last to be reinstated for the Second World War, but that doesn't stop them being incredibly useful. So what exactly was happening at this time? Can you just give us a bit of context for listeners who maybe aren't aware? Of course. So the late 1930s, there's a chap called Adolf Hitler come to power in Germany. The political situation is looking very kind of rocky. And I think, you know, a lot of people at that time are fairly clear on the fact that there's going to be some sort of conflict. Of course, nobody can foresee at that time how long it's going to last and how it will be a total war all around the world. But it's pretty clear. And the, and the memory of the First World War is lingering in the minds of many people because it's recent and the losses were incredible numbers. And that was a very dark time for a lot of people. So they're going into this second conflict, not really under any illusions as to what that means. And this manpower crisis that occurred in the First World War, where, you know, you send so many men overseas that there are vacuums left at home that have to be filled and they are filled with women in the, in the First World War. And that's also lingering in the minds of many in the Second World War. The way that women had stepped up in the First World War, tens of thousands of them in the military services, that leaves a mark in the minds of, of British people, the government, the authorities, the military. Thank goodness, because they, they then know um, when the Second World War does break out in 1939, that they have this woman power contingent to rely on. Okay, so where do the Royal Air Force, where do the WAF come into this? They've been formed. What are they going to be doing? What's their plan? Well, interestingly, at the start of the Second World War, they actually have fewer options than they had in the first, which is is kind of odd because... The, by now, the women in Britain have been given the vote. And, you, and you know, social change is happening and you think progress has been made. But actually, at the start of the Second World War, the, the, the number of roles available with the Air Force for them is, is fewer. At the beginning, there's still this nervousness in the British authorities and in the RAF and at the Air Ministry about what women should do what they can do, what they're capable of. And there is definitely a certain amount of underestimation and a discomfort with seeing women in military uniforms because it's not what's supposed to happen according to the kind of rules of the day, socially speaking. Women are nurturers. They take care of people and men go out and protect. And, and there's that kind of divide. So to put a woman in a military uniform is kind of subversive in itself. It's kind of the the unwomanly thing to do it's not very feminine but as we know as as the second world war progresses and it becomes apparent that we are going to need huge numbers of soldiers they really don't have a choice but to call on them and, and open up the number of roles that are available and that ranges from you know initially things that are a bit more comfortable to see women doing so domestic helpers on air stations secretaries you know things that aren't a huge departure with women's work 
to then eventually seeing them doing things like arming planes, packing parachutes, barrage balloon handlers. They're, you know, struggling with these huge balloons full of hydrogen gas and explosives. You don't expect to see women doing things like that. So the roles kind of open up as the war goes on and pretty clear to see that every time they're given a new thing to do, they're actually very good at it. And they kind of, the proof is in the pudding, essentially, you know, we'll give them this and see how they do. Uh, and overwhelmingly, they do very well. And that leads to more and more kind of involvement in what the RAF is doing. Does this change societal perceptions of women in this kind of work at all? It's difficult to ignore. You, you see, you know, a, a group of women in what they call battle dress, which is kind of overalls, struggling with a massive hydrogen-filled balloon designed to bring down an enemy aircraft. You can't ignore things like that. But the change in society is not as quick as, as you'd like to think, actually, which is clear at the end of the Second World War when many of them have to give up their roles and kind of go back to the kitchen, as it were. It's clear that Britain is grateful for their help, but not necessarily very good at proving it. <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. I think maybe one of the images that might come to mind of, if you think women working during the Second World War, is probably around a giant map covered in numbers and letters pushing around croupier sticks. That certainly springs to my mind. So what is exactly this role? I'm very glad you asked because these are my favourite women to talk about and they're some of the most missing women from the, the kind of record of the Second World War and particularly the Battle of Britain, which is where we would tend to see those images the most. And it is kind of, it's a, an image you see in, you know, the old Battle of Britain film and I think a lot of people would see that image and not understand it. And it's really, really important what they're doing. So they are part of the world's first integrated air defence system. And when I say integrated, I mean all the different parts of it are connected. 
uh, right from the first interception of enemy signals or picking up of of incoming aircraft on the radar network, which is kind of brand new at that point, right to scrambling fighter squadrons or anti-aircraft artillery to do something about the incoming raid. And that is a fascinating system. It's called the Dowding system. And there are lots of kind of components and there are women in basically all of them. So you've got the WAF radar operators on the coast of Britain and they are sat sometimes in caravans or flimsy huts. And the catch is for radar to work, you need a 360 foot tall tower which is clearly visible from the air. Um, so, you know, that makes them a target for the, for the Luftwaffe planes that are coming in. It's, it's dangerous in that sense. They're using this, this new technology that's been developed, radar, radio direction finding, and basically it enables them to, to know certain pieces of information about incoming raids, down to how many aircraft are in a Luftwaffe raid, what altitude are they flying at, what direction are they heading in, you can see how that information is useful to an outnumbered Royal Air Force who then know exactly where they need to put fighter squadrons or anti-aircraft artillery to intercept that raid. And we've got records of German pilots arriving over Britain and being really annoyed and surprised and confused about why they've got a welcoming committee in the form of Spitfires and Hurricanes who have come to see them off. And the role that the women play goes all the way through that system. So they're there picking them up on the coast and they send that information through to the room that you're talking about. So filter rooms and operations rooms. And that's where women are listening through headsets to what the radar operators are saying. And they are depicting on that big map what is happening in the air and that information is usually only two to five minutes old so this is real-time intelligence and the RAF can see from that map which they're updating with their little casino croupier sticks what is happening at any given point during that battle and it is high stress work and they use a fantastic word to describe the kind of woman they need unflappable we need unflappable women I'm not unflappable at all. And actually, interestingly, the women they picked for that role were given the same kind of psychological testing as fighter pilots because it was that stressful. It must be quite skilled in that way then as well. Very skilled. You're listening and you're doing at the same time. So you're multitasking. Say what you will about men, women and multitasking. I pass no comment on the matter, but the RAF certainly did. And the men working in the operations rooms were of the opinion that the women were actually better at this work than they were, which is why into the Battle of Britain, you see mainly women around those tables rather than men because they do prove unflappable and they're very good at at the high stress situation because you're doing this work but you're also doing it in the knowledge that people's lives depend on you doing it well the pressure of knowing that civilians and airmen are are counting on you to do it well because it is a life or death situation so it's a a stressful fast-paced job with that kind of pressure How did women deal with and cope with this high-stress work? It's actually something I looked at in the book was, you know, how did women subjectively look at their roles? How did they feel about what they were doing? Because that's what we don't tend to see. And then women's being missing from history, not just as objects, but their voices and their personal experiences. So I I did look at how they felt about their work. 
because the RAF had this opinion, I mean, you know, most people in Britain probably had this opinion that women were emotional creatures and that they would become hysterical in the situations with, you know, high pressure, life and death, being up close to the harsh reality and danger of war. And the RAF weren't shy about saying that. They were genuinely, you know, saying we're worried that they're going to come become hysterical and have breakdowns every five minutes. And the women proved that to be entirely wrong. They dealt with it very, very well. They knew what they were doing. They were aware of their role in enemy deaths and in winning battles or or losing battles. They were aware of their role and the importance of their work in the Dowding system. And overwhelmingly, they pretty much look at it as well, it was us or them. We did what we had to do. We had to survive. And that was true on a pretty much daily basis because WAF were casualties of war and they were killed in bombing raids. And I think the kind of, the overwhelming reaction was we have to get through this, whatever happens, because our cousins, our brothers, our fiancés, our sweethearts are out there dying and our work can help um, and hopefully bring them home. So it's very interesting to look at the emotional reactions of warfare. So perhaps a sense of camaraderie almost. Absolutely. And they often say, I don't think I've ever read a WAF diary where one one didn't say the camaraderie got us through. It's very much a situation where they're all in it together. They, they all know somebody who's in danger. You know, one of them will, will wake up one morning and get a telegram saying that someone they love isn't getting home. And then the person in the bunk next to them will get the same thing the next day and they're going through all of that difficulty together and that is going to make you close and a lot of them remained close for decades after the war. So what were the living conditions of women in the WAF and what do they do for fun? What was their lifestyle like? It really varied according to what they, their role was, where they were in the country. So bearing in mind a lot of air stations have not been built with thousands of women in, in mind. It wasn't really ever thought, oh, we should accommodate for a bunch of women because, yeah, you know, when these air stations were built, that wasn't on anybody's mind. So it's not like they all have barracks to live in. Some, some are built, but a lot of them are billeted, which means put up by a local family in a, with a spare room. So you might get a really nice billet where you're looked after, but lots of them had begrudging billets where people were, basically their spare rooms were requisitioned and they were told they had to take a waff or two, which was probably less pleasant. But they appear to have kind of made the most of whatever conditions they had. And I think for a lot of them, you know, they've spoken in their diaries about how weird it was to have to go and do your morning ablutions with other people because you've definitely got that kind of importance of privacy in this era. And they're shocked by having to wash their faces or shower with other people around. But they adjust. And I think, you know, the motto of the WAF was adjust and overcome. And they, they overwhelmingly did in every situation. The food was good or it was bad, depending on where you were. Interesting, at Bletchley, there are lots of... Bletchley Park, there are lots of reports of bad food. But for fun... 
they really made the most of free passes to the cinema, going to dances with American airmen. I found a hilarious word, which I find particularly funny because uh, my husband's American. Apparently, WAF, who preferred the company of American soldiers, were known as Yankee bashers, which is a hilarious word, quite a strange thing to be called, but... They loved the uniforms and they loved the kind of gifts of stockings and chewing gum that the Americans would bring them. But also putting on plays. I found a lovely account, quite moving account, of a WAF who had been an opera singer before the war. And during an air raid, she and, and some of her colleagues, RAF and WAF, were in a shelter. And it was terrifying because it was just constant bombing. And they didn't know what they were going to, you know, come out to when they left the shelter. And she started singing and she just sang throughout the raid and it calmed everybody down. So it was really a case of calling on hobbies or musical ability, anything that you could to keep everybody going rather than just you. So there seems to be lots of morale boosting, lots of that camaraderie that we've spoken about. What kind of dangers were they actually facing then? So the Second World War is different in nature to most wars that have come before it in that bombing brings the the front home. So every time you go to bed or wake up or go outside your house, you are in danger of being maimed or killed. That's the harsh reality. Whereas in the First World War, the fighting front was kind of this remote place where women didn't go. In the second, uh, you know, my grandmother frequently woke in the middle of the night in the middle of London to the sound of bombs dropping on the houses around her, and that that made everyday life dangerous. So WAF are working on air stations. The enemy is told that military installations and air stations are a prime target for bombing. So they are kind of doubly in danger in that way, and, and the number of them were killed by enemy bombs. They are sometimes also working with situations and equipment that are quite dangerous. So, you know, if you're working with munitions or explosives or anything like that, that's obviously dangerous too. But it's another thing that they appear to have taken in their stride. One of the things that you mentioned a minute ago was a really recognisable place, Bletchley. Now, what were the WAF doing there exactly? Bletchley Park is is one of our secrets we now know and are quite proud of it was a very well kept secret and it actually only kind of came out in 1974 and I think for you know quite a long time nobody knew what had happened there but we now know that it was the home of British code breaking so people like Alan Turing who most of us will know fantastic mathematician and code breaker very clever man worked there to kind of read essentially read the enemy's mail so any kind of electronic transmissions or radio signals or anything like that that was sent by the Axis powers were broken into at Bletchley Park so that we could have this very reliable intelligence. And intelligence is measured in terms of reliability. And because this information is coming directly from the enemy to the enemy, it's very reliable because it's kind of essentially from the horse's mouth. So Bletchley is a very important place in that way. And there are Women's Auxiliary Air Force members involved in most stages of what we call SIGINT, Signals Intelligence, which is what's happening 
at Bletchley. So they're involved in all of the stages, the interception of enemy communications, which doesn't actually happen at Bletchley. It happens at Y stations, Y listening stations. And they kind of, you know, listen to enemy signals, uh, write down their contents, which are encoded and encrypted at that point, most of them. Um, And they're sent to Bletchley, sometimes by WAF motorcyclists who take them on dispatch bikes. And they're delivered to Bletchley and that's where WAF will help to kind of organise them, catalogue them, get them to the right place in the park where they can be worked on. And then more WAF will help to translate, decrypt, decode whatever needs to happen to break into these messages. So it's this very sophisticated but very compartmentalised operation smattered with WAF doing all kinds of very clever things. Do we get a sense of how women in the WAF felt about the secretive nature of their work? It's one of those things that the Air Ministry, again, they were they were fearful of hysteria in women, but they were also fearful of their gossipy nature stopping them from being able to keep national secrets. So the Air Ministry and the RAF are worried that the, the WAF are going to either intentionally or accidentally blab about what they're doing at Bletchley, which, you know, can't happen. It just mustn't happen. And actually, the WAF are incredibly good at keeping secrets. You obviously get the odd exception. But for the most part, it looks like it's in the records. It's men who are trying to show off down the pub to to women that they meet. Oh, I do this very secret work at this very secret location. And actually, the WAF, to the point of being arrested because they won't tell the police what they're up to, are very keen not to share that information. I actually was was very privileged to interview two ladies who were 98 who worked at Bletchley Park a few weeks ago. Twins, slept in the same bed for most of the war and never told each other what they had been doing because they worked in different buildings. They had grandchildren before they spoke to each other about what they had been doing, let alone anybody else. And I think for the most part, they felt very committed to the secrecy because they knew what it meant. They knew how important it was. Through your research, have you found a lot of characters and personalities and what exactly motivated them to work in this highly secretive, highly stressful role? It's interesting because a lot of the WAF in intelligence work are sort of specially recruited, handpicked for certain skills or abilities that they might have. Women aren't generally educated to a very high level in things like maths and engineering and sciences, so if they have something that will make them good at intelligence work, they're picked pretty quickly. But when they're picked, they're told basically nothing about what they'll be doing. They're told, we need you to do this very, very important work. It's very secret. You can't tell anybody about it, not your husband, not your father, your mother, nobody. You probably won't be eligible for promotion. That was at Bletchley Park. So that's quite a hard pill to swallow. And uh, would you like to do it? And (laughs) overwhelmingly, most of them said yes. Of course, based on the words in that sentence, it is very important. And it was a situation where, you know, every family sent somebody off to war and they were aware of what was at stake They're not silly. They're listening to wireless reports, reading newspapers, watching the war happen. And they know if if the government says to them, this is very important, they know that they are needed to to do something that will help to win or lose the war. 
and their commitment extends beyond patriotism. They are all in. And I think for, for the women, you know, they, they, they look at the women and say emotion is a bad thing. But I think for women, they, they kind of threw themselves into this work because they were emotionally committed to what it meant. They wanted to be a part of, of family members and friends coming home. I would like to ask you about other roles that women in the WAF took on. Now, I think there's one that you'd especially like to talk about, and that's the Special Operations Executive Agents, so the SOE agents. Could you tell us a bit about them? The WAF SOE agents are a bit of an anomaly because you see lots of WAF doing slightly subversive work in some ways, but not gun-toting you know, explosive type thing, which is what we watch on the movies and quite enjoy. And the special operations executive is the stuff of Hollywood films. It is an odd organisation. It's Winston Churchill's brainchild, which, you know, should tell you what you need to know. He calls it his ministry of ungentlemanly warfare because there's this idea that you have to conduct war in a gentlemanly way in Britain. And Hitler's not doing that. And Churchill's very aware of of that fact. And he thinks, you know, well, we need to, we kind of need to stoop a bit if we're going to fight fire with fire, essentially. So so Churchill creates this odd little organisation, the SOE. And they're basically tasked with setting Europe ablaze. And they're sent into enemy-occupied areas, basically to irritate the Nazis, to assist resistance movements against German control, and to kind of annoy the German forces by taking out sections of transport or communications to make their operations more difficult. And rather unusually, this band of merry men is joined by a handful of merry women. So there are 39 women who were sent into occupied France. They are the F section SRE women and a number of them were WAF as well. So they're sent to annoy the Germans in in Paris and in France. They very much do. So there's a couple of them particularly that are my favourites. Noor Inyat Khan is a name a lot of us are coming to know and I'm so glad about that because for decades nobody did. Um, And Noor is an incredibly brave young woman who was responsible for saving the lives of a number of downed allied pilots, getting them home. Pilots are a commodity. So they take time to train. So if we can get pilots home and put them back in the air, that's very useful. But she's also involved in collecting the only intelligence that we're able to get on occupied Paris for a good few months. And she she's very kind of effective in many ways in her role. She is unfortunately betrayed and is tortured and kept in solitary confinement for months. And we have a report from a German commandant who who was present at some of the interrogations, and he said it didn't matter what we did to Noor, we couldn't get any usable information out of her, which is testament to just how wrong the British authorities were when they thought women couldn't keep secrets. The other favourite I have is Pearl Witherington, who initially joined the SOE because her fiancé Henry had been captured and was in a POW camp, and she thought 
Or if I pop over as a clandestine agent, I can break him out, which, you know, they didn't really need to add anything to that to make it into a very interesting film. And ultimately, Pearl and Henry end up in charge of a unit of French resistance soldiers um, and are responsible for lots of explosions that make it more difficult for the Germans to get reinforcements to Normandy during the D-Day landing. So these are just incredibly brave, very special women. So you've spoken about such a range of roles just in this short time, but what other roles did women in the WAF take that we should definitely know about before the end of this episode? I think it's quite easy to assume that because of the sort of rules of warfare and things like that at the time, WAF pretty much worked on the home front and that their involvement in war didn't sort of extend to the offensive capacity. And, you know, a lot of them did work on the home front, but a lot of them were also sent overseas to do work in far-off places. But you've also got the WAF on the home front who actually had their fingers in lots of pies in terms of taking the fight to the enemy. So we've talked about WAF in the Battle of Britain, which is very much defensive. We're defending the home country But the WAF who are involved in Bomber Command are involved in allied bombing operations, which is taking the fight to the enemy rather than waiting to be attacked. And that's, again, slightly more uncomfortable for the Air Ministry and for the British authorities because you don't want to think about women being actively involved in offensive warfare. But they are. They're assisting Bomber Command in all sorts of ways, planning bomber operations. They do lots of things to help plan, providing maps, information on bombing targets. You know, this is a useful factory to hit because it will wipe out munitions in that city, things like that. Providing them with call signs and codes and things like that for communications. Some of them were even involved in making scale models of bombing targets, including the Ruhr Valley Dams, so 617 Squadron, the Dam Busters. Waffer involved in making scale models of those dams so the Dam Busters can look at them all day long for weeks and know exactly what that terrain is going to look like when they fly their very daring and in some ways quite crazy mission at 60 feet above the water, which is quite difficult to do. So they need all the help they can get, and the WAF are kind of there to provide it. And they're also involved during operations. You've got Allied bomber aircraft sort of limping home if they've sustained damage from anti-aircraft fire. You've got WAF involved guiding them home into blacked-out airfields and saving lives in that way. And then I think personally for me, the most interesting role that they do in Bomber Command is debriefing air crews. So when you get an air crew come home from a bombing operation, they, whether they know it or not, have very, very important information in their heads. And it's the role of interrogators to kind of draw it out of them. It's mostly to do with bomb damage assessment. So how successful was your raid? Do we need to go back and bomb that factory again? Um, Or did you do sufficient damage? The men coming home are exhausted. They're probably bothered. They're they're traumatised, a lot of them, because they've just seen and done things that they... They never thought they'd have to in their lives. They might have seen friends go down um, to be killed or captured. It's very tough on them. And they come home and the last thing they want to do is sit and talk to someone about what's just happened. And the air ministry, you know, we're seeing a pattern by now of underestimation and just being wrong about what women are, are capable of. 
the air ministry thinks we can't let WAF do that. It'll, it'll upset the men, for one thing, because they won't want to talk to women about this. But also it'll upset the women because it's too traumatising. So eventually, you know, same story, run out of men and need women to do this job. And, and they do. And they are ultimately very good at it it's another one of those situations where actually being a woman and those inherent kind of traits that women have they kind of spin them to be very useful in their work so the fact that they are emotionally intuitive and sensitive enables them to deal with traumatized tired crews and the crews are actually really grateful for the way that they're dealt with a man might you know slap on the shoulder cheer up mate the WAF are very sensitive and calm and switched on to what the crews need and actually managed to get very good usable information out of them. So what would you say has been the long-term legacy of the WAF then? I think people are very quick to look at the WAF and the women who served in the Second World War and think that what they did led to immediate and sweeping change. And unfortunately, it didn't at the end of the Second World War. This time, the services are not demobilised, but they are reduced in size. So the WAF continues to exist after the Second World War, but the quarter of a million women who served in it are not still there. Many of them return to life at home. And we watch over the decades how, you know, the women's liberation and women's rights play out. But it's quite a long time until things are anything like equal for women in the Royal Air Force. And it was actually in the early 1990s that they were fully integrated and were able to fly, for instance, active duty combat missions. So it was a long, slow process. And in many ways, it's still ongoing. And I think, you know, even in the intelligence world, there's still a ways to go in terms of full integration and equality. But the WAF provide this kind of precedent and this example that it is impossible to ignore. They are, you know, the poster child for what women can do and are capable of in terms of military involvement and intelligence work. And I've spoken to a number of currently serving women in the Royal Air Force who do cite them as a source of great inspiration. And I think, I don't know about you, but personally, having having worked on their story and read about them, I cannot see them as anything other than hugely inspiring and a fantastic example of what women are capable of. How do you think that we should be thinking about the WAF today? I think that there is a tendency to group what women did in wartime as women's history, as gender history. And when I did my research, you know, academically speaking, when I was an undergraduate, uh, and then my master's and my PhD, but also when I write books about women, I refuse to do that. I won't do it from a single angle that way because it, if you're going to, you know, confine women's history in a, in a little box of its own, you're never going to get the full picture. And I think actually when you place them back in the wider context of the Second World War, of a massive war, of military services, of the intelligence world, you get a much bigger picture and you get some indication of what their their work meant, its value, its impact in, in the, the outcome of battles and operations and ultimately in 1945 of the war. So I think it's, it's a case of trying to 
to plug the point that this isn't women's history, it's just history. And it's not the women's services, it's not women in the military, it's women in war. It's this much wider picture that we need to be creating and looking at. And in terms of, I call it excavating, in terms of excavating women's history, because it's not missing, it's just forgotten and it's just hidden. And I think it's it's a case of digging it up. But when, when you do excavations, archaeologically speaking, you still have the whole area around it and you don't take it out of, of context. You can't because it will it will do something to the meaning. So I'll bang that drum all day long. This is this is war history, it's intelligence history, it's military history, and we don't need to kind of separate it because I think that does damage. That was Dr. Sarah Louise Miller. Her book, The Women Behind the Few, is out now, published by Biteback. You can find out more about some of the key locations Sarah spoke about in today's episode in her brand new YouTube series. Just search for Dr. Sarah Louise Miller Secret History on YouTube to bring that up. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.